Hi, and welcome to Godzilla. My name is Brian Bentley. This is a podcast that deals with music, movies, comedy, and uh, excessive consumption. So I think for the first time, we're going to be touching on all four subjects at the same time. Because today we're talking about a movie that's about rock and roll and some very funny and mostly intelligent magazine writers and editors whose lifestyles pretty much define the concept of excessive consumption. Right now we're square in the middle of 2020, but some of us have never really left 1975 because in my opinion, the 70s probably would not have survived the 2020s. This was how wacky the 70s were. They weren't just devoid of PC. The 70s were often devoid of consequences. You could insult the living crap out of someone in print, punch a colleague in the face, ask your secretary to write a boob joke, and nobody would sue you. Nobody outside the room could really shame you unless you called them on the phone or somebody wrote an angry chain letter. And this was a period of time when rock and roll was relatively fresh and new, except to the cynical and the already rock-weary writers at a magazine called Cream. When the magazine started in 1969 in a crummy Detroit neighborhood, Cream represented Midwest nobodies and anyone anywhere who loved rock and roll but felt left out of everything else. The writers at Cream had nothing to lose because nobody in their right mind would have predicted success. So that translated to one word, and that was freedom. And that's exactly what drove that magazine to be the kind of magazine that every kid would wait on the newsstand for. Today, my guest is the writer and director of Cream, America's only rock and roll magazine. It's a documentary that premiered at the 2019 South by Southwest Festival and will be released on multiple formats starting in August. I have seen maybe 200 rock docs, and this one has some really nice breakthrough video clips and rock and roll stories. Will you please welcome director Scott Crawford? Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. That's a long introduction, but you know what? Some people might not know what Cream was. That's true. I mean, Cream was really of its time, you know, and I think by the end of this film, people will understand what I mean by that. Uh, as you said in your introduction, you know, Cream got away with things that no one could get away with now. I was thinking about this earlier today, and I was thinking if their editor, Lester Bangs, had a Twitter account <laughs> in 2020, it would probably last for about two or three hours before shutting it down. Although, knowing Lester, he'd probably love the uh, back and forth. It was, um, you know, you have to remember just in terms of context, you know, Cream Magazine was the number two eventually by the mid 70s, became the number two magazine to Rolling Stone on the newsstands. Uh, but having said that, you know, they were based in Detroit. They weren't on the coasts. And, you know, they were sort of mad magazine crossed with, I don't know, Esquire and maybe Rolling Stone and uh, God knows what else. But um Certainly they, you know, editorially, they didn't suffer fools and they also didn't, didn't have any problem knocking rock stars off their pedestals. Yeah, I think the movie really connects with that in a big way. Um, I want to talk about Jan Uhelski, who was one of the original members of the Korean editorial staff. She was an editor at the magazine from 1971 to 1977, and she co-wrote the script. And can you just tell me how you met her? and J.J. Uh, Kramer, and how this whole thing just sort of, you know, was put together. Sure. Um, let me try and capsulize it a bit. Um, so 
I, uh, I had my own magazine in the 2000s or the aughts, I guess is what I'm supposed to call them. Yeah. Um, uh, from 2001 to 2008, uh, it was a magazine called Harp. And it was sort of like the alternative to spin um, at that time. And uh, uh, <clears throat> it was a newsstand magazine. We had a nice subscription base. Um, we did well for, for, like I said, about seven years. And Jan actually was my senior editor for most of that period. And so I worked very closely with Jan. Um, she, uh, you know, helped. She wrote countless cover stories. We, you know, we won a number of awards because of her, you know, had a very close relationship. And through that, you know, I had heard countless stories of some of the inner office, uh, <laughs> inner office conflicts, just editorial approach to putting out the, the, the magazine each month. Um, so I always kind of kept that in my back pocket. And when I started doing film stuff, um, you know, I went back to that and said, you know, there's a hell of a story there and it hasn't been told. And especially, you know, given the period we're in right now, this was actually pre Trump, not that the white house has anything to do with this, but, um, but certainly, um, uh, having now spent four years of my life on this film, it's, it's interesting to see kind of where we're at right now culturally and where this film fits into all of that. So, um, but to answer your question about JJ, JJ Kramer is the uh, producer on the film and is also um, the son of the late uh, publisher of Cream, Barry Kramer and Connie Kramer, who is the associate publisher. And I reached out to him through Jan who suggested I do so. And, um, and, and kind of just threw out my idea of like how this documentary should kind of flow and just the narrative of it. And um, we just connected, you know, immediately. And apparently a number of other folks had come along through the years wanting to do docs on Cream. And for whatever reason, he just didn't, uh, just didn't agree to do it with, with those particular folks. So, um, so it was a real honor to be able to, to be trusted with doing, you know, telling the story. I've always wondered, what a director does sometimes I even asked my girlfriend this question. I said, what does a director on a documentary do? I mean, we know what directors do on a film set. You know, it's like speed, lights, action, roll, everything. But on, on a documentary, how did you guys break down how you sort of organize this thing? Because it's, I, I just imagine at first, it's like looking at a giant, um, you know, one of those puzzles you put out on the floor or the thousands of pieces. Like, how did you guys sort of like structure it? That's a great question. Um, yeah, it's, I think the role when you're doing a film like this and you're working with other folks is to create, um, is to find the strongest narrative and to focus on that and then help, and then, you know, have that drive the film and create an outline based from, based on that. And so, um, you know, it took, it took a while to kind of find that and to figure out, okay, what's the real story? Like who are the main characters who, you know, I mean, you could you could make a dozen different documentaries on Cream Magazine and still not tell the entire story. Um, and I, I certainly wasn't trying to do that. I wasn't trying to be, you know, the ultimate, you know, cream source for all things cream. I was just trying to tell with this particular film, um, just a story of a bunch of misfits that kind of came together and created, against all odds, really created something um, that, that had a real uh, impact. Right. I, th I thought the, the, I have never seen Barry Kramer on film. I was a, a cream uh, fan. You know, I used to go to the newsstand and, and 
pick it up every month. And I've never seen him on camera. And the footage at the beginning of the film where they're kind of, you know, he's interviewing and, and Dave Marsh looks like he's 14 years old. And, and that whole thing there was just amazing. Did that, did that, did the black and white videotape and stuff, did that come from Connie Kramer? I mean, how did you get a hold of that? Yeah, that was actually a local PBS affiliate in Detroit that shot that in like 71, I believe. It was either 70 or 71. And when I saw that footage, I knew we had a film because, right, right. you know, without that, um, it's really, you know, people said like, well, how are you going to make a documentary about a magazine? Like, what, what's interesting about that? And I just said, well, just wait, you know? And so, but if you didn't have that kind of footage, um, it would just been really difficult to tell, to really sort of uh, paint a picture of, of how they lived and how they, how they worked, how they coexisted. And that, 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 that footage is just gold. Yeah, there was something else I wanted to ask you about. There, there's something that doesn't have any audio, but it looks like a group discussion in black and white, like almost like a talk show. And it's it's Barry, Lester, and Dave, and they're kind of sitting around in a circle. And at the very end of it, they get up and uh, and Barry says, "Well, thank you, David," and he reaches out to shake some, somebody's hand. I and I thought it was like David Suskind for a second, the old talk show host. So I started looking through YouTube to try to find that. Is that is that anywhere out there, or what was that? No, that's part of the same footage actually from the PBS affiliate. And that was, they did do a sort of this round table discussion, um, which you'll see th I sort of peppered throughout the film, but, uh, but yeah, that was, that was such a great moment because of the tension that existed between those two and whether or not that's what that was, I, I'm not sure exactly, but I felt like it helped illustrate, you know, just, uh, that uh, that yin and yang that existed between between not just Barry but also Lester. One of the things you have to do when you're doing a film like this is you have to get licensing for clips and and put all this stuff together. Just how big a job was that for you to do, and like how much time and money did that did that take up out of your budget? I'm just curious. Uh yeah, it was considerable uh, in terms of time and and things like that. Um, the music licensing was not um, inexpensive. Um, that was a big part of the budget, um, but I felt like it was, uh, you know, important because you needed to have those artists that were, you know, from Detroit, or at the very least, at least um, talked about at length, or discussed, or 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 in some or in some way, um, uh, you know, connected to to what Cream was doing in Detroit at that time as part of the soundtrack. So yeah, it was, it, it, you know, the whole thing took about four years uh, to do, which is probably twice as long as it should have taken. It, it um, the thing about the film is the, the interviews are really great. Um, Dave Marsh, you can obviously tell was probably a handful to deal with. He still looks like uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's still, he still kind of reminds me of, you know, he looks a little bit like David Gilmore or Roger Waters, you know, so you, so you kind of, you kind of look at that and you go, Okay, so what what's this chemistry like with him and Lester and Barry and Barry's you know jumping up on a desk and and probably on half a dozen substances and Lester's sticking to some real specific uh, intellectual point that he's not going to get off of. I thought the interviews were really good and I was just kind of curious how those were shot. I mean, is is that a recent thing of of, of Dave? The interviews we did, with, yeah, those were done at his home. Um, so those were done within the last. We did those about two to 
two and a half years ago. Okay. Yeah, two years ago. Um, that to me, it was doing those interviews with Dave was was really the, Jan actually did them, but I was there. And uh, those are really one of the high, you know, real highlights for me doing the film was sitting down with Dave and just letting him talk at length about this stuff. The film demonstrates how how it was really based on a love of the music and based on everybody really did care about each other and it was a community. Do you think that that community thing can connect with today's audience? It might feel, especially like in the lockdown right now, like that they just, there's no connection, you know, at all. And, and I, I thought it was great. Thank you. Yeah. I, um, it's a great question. I actually think I was kind of hoping for the opposite, you know, just given where we're at right now, um, you know, I, 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 um, I thought a lot about this actually. And I think that, you know, I don't, I don't know if cream cream certainly could not exist the way it did back then today, but I think that the sense of community and the sense of purpose, I think is something that, you know, still exists now. And, uh, you know, in certain circles or, or tribes, whatever you want to call it, uh so so yeah i i think that um i think that's an important kind of thing i it's always something i'm attracted to i i i love the idea of of just what brings people together against kind of all odds and you know you're not making a living at this so what is it that's driving you well it's in this case it's the love of of the music so um i'd like to think that, that still exists um, can you can you imagine people today sitting around and debating to the point of a fist fight uh, whether or not a certain band's latest record was, you know, I mean, obviously it's not even, it's a completely different reality, but I, I kind of, I thought it was interesting. Lester Bangs, I would have to say, you know, and he's one of the centerpieces of the film. And there's a lot of really cool, uh, not only photos, but brief little clips where you may not even hear Lester say more than a couple words, but for, for me as a huge fan of his, it was the first time that it actually matched kind of, spoken word and a personality to this this guy who's like i mean i read jim de book let it blurt and i've, I've read you know uh carburetor dung and i've read all, all, the, all the, the lester books do you find it crazy that there's only really one video clip of lester that's out on the internet where he's talking about hating emerson lake and palmer there's there's really nothing else right not a whole lot no that's why we were you know when we found some of this footage of lester that you see in the film that had ne I'd never seen this stuff. And I, you know, I'd scoured years before even ever thinking about doing a film. I had, you know, scoured the internet looking for Lester stuff just as a fan. So to find it as a filmmaker, knowing that it would be, you know, potentially a part of the story you're telling in the, in the film that you're doing, you know, it was like finding hidden treasure or something. Yeah, and th th that was such a huge part of, 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 of get, again, telling the story, giving a voice to these folks. You know, so many people have told me after watching the film, like I never actually heard Lester speak. Right, right. I mean, I mean, he it's literally, and when you hear him speak, he has, um, you know, he came, he was from San Diego and came, from what I understand, came came to Detroit, fell in love with it. And he, he got a Detroit accent pretty fast, that sort of Midwest <laughs> thing. And I, I just kind of wonder about just if there was a, what's I'm sure the word for it, but was there a certain pressure, you know, to get, to get this story right? Because there's, it's such an important part of 
like journalism and, and music history? Did, did you feel like, did that have anything to do with how long it took or was it just a, a process that just took that long? Oh no, that, no, that was a huge part of it. I mean, it's again, um, taking on the subject of cream and Lester and, and, and so many other things um, under one sort of umbrella in terms of the narrative. I mean, all of that stuff, you know, you don't, I didn't take lightly. So I really spent time with it and, and massaged it and tried to figure out, you know, just covering all your bases and not getting too inside baseball at the same time and yeah, all that stuff. So yeah, it, 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 like I said, it took longer than it probably should have, but this is a subject that's close to me. And so I, I didn't take it lightly and I, I um, you know, thought very long and hard on, on how I wanted to kind of get this stuff across. Yeah, I was doing some research, you know, uh, watching some YouTube clips, and there's a, a clip out there from a woman. She's talking about people didn't like the fact that Ted Nugent was featured in uh, some of the clips. And the first thing I thought of, because I was a reader in real time, was that Ted Nugent was written up in that magazine a lot. He was from Detroit. He had maybe the best guitar tone I've ever heard as a musician, you know, musician myself that I have never heard anybody could get that kind of sounds out of a guitar. And to be, to be honest, I think if you were to dredge the original cream staff up and say, should Ted Nugent be here? They would say absolutely automatically. And if people don't like it, screw them because we do what we want anyway. And you know, Ted was part of it. <laughs> it was an interesting, it's interesting, you know, that to be framed in his current sort of a uh, Tourette syndrome, uh, personality and then looking at that clip for sure um but the thing you know um i understood what she was what the writer was saying when she said that um i think most people probably would given his current or his you know uh latter uh sort of career um it's been <laughs> downwards uh, downward spiral oh well, I'll let you say that. I'll, I'll keep my mouth shut. But uh, role as a kind of spokesman for um, the uh, the right. Um, yeah, but, you know, I felt like, well, this, you know, what, so what? Am I going to just deny the fact that this guy was, um, you know, Motor City Madman? Like, you know, he was central to what was, or if not central, certainly a part, a big part of what was going on in Detroit. Um and was, you know, um, born and raised and everything else. So you're going to just deny that this, you know, despite what he might be saying on any given day right now on Twitter, you can't deny this guy's, um, you know, role and what was going on um, in, in Detroit and, you know, frankly, really uh, uh, across the country at that point. I mean, he was a national artist. So, um, but, you know, having said that, uh, I'm not a personal fan of his politics or what he might have to say on any given day, but uh, but but certainly recognized his role in, in what, what was happening at that point. And so you have to separate how you might feel about somebody or their politics and put that aside. It's not about that, it's about the story. I saw in the uh, interviews um, for the uh, South by Southwest where the movie premiered uh, last year, they asked Jan that question. And um, actually, it was a, a question about misogyny and what's it, what was it like to be a woman um, dealing with that. And I think she's, to paraphrase her, I think she said something like, you took the good with the bad, you tried to make your presence felt and, and, and make something better. But at the very end of the day, if you want to keep pushing on this, this is 
40 years ago, 50 years ago, you know, sue me. I think she said something like that. Yeah. I, I thought that was great. Yeah, that sounds like Jan. Yeah, that's probably what she said. And, you know, like she said in the film, it was like, you know, I, I wanted to address, because it's the elephant in the room, right? So if you, so you do a film about this magazine, you know, and you leave out the fact that it was politically incorrect. When, when people are done watching the film and they go back, let's just say they, they, they've never heard of Cream. They watch the film. And we leave that fact out and then they go back and they start buying issues off eBay or something. And they go, geez, man, this magazine was like just totally out of sync with what's going on right now. Well, yeah. But so to deny that that was what was going on, just again, it's about the truth and it's about, you know, telling the story honestly. And um, that was always one of the things I said very early on was like, we have to be as honest. This is a warts and all story. And it's also a story of a magazine of its time. And so to deny any of that would just be, just wouldn't be truthful. I, I had a question about the, the humor in the magazine and the, the, the fact that people need to appreciate what a funny magazine this was. And I came across, um, there were several great editors that helped this magazine um, stay alive and, and through lean times and good. And they were uh, Jay Cordish, Bill Holdship, who did a great job, and one of my personal favorites, Dave DiMartino. And Dave wrote a, a piece in 1984, which I think I bought on the newsstand. It was a review of The Doors' Dance on Fire, which had just come out on VHS. So we're talking 1984, and this is The Doors. So it was a huge, huge thing. And Dave wrote this incredible gonzo piece that was Basically, he had been assigned to review the, the film or the uh, review the VHS tape. And he'd gone to bed a little nervous about, can I do it? Am I into it? Do I want to do this? And he woke up in the body of Jim Morrison. And he just go he takes it from there. And there's like numerous, numerous sort of sight gags. You know, he looks out the window and he sees a Ford Fiero. And he says, what the hell kind of car is that? You know, it's like, and it's Jim Morrison in 1971, waking up in 1984. And the, the, one of the, the best punchlines is when it, go, it comes time to review the actual movie, he can't figure out how to work a VHS machine. <laughs> so, and then the final punchline is, I got to go to bed early tonight and get a lot of rest because tomorrow I review Madonna. <laughs> so, I, it's, right. To me, it was, I mean, how many magazines, if any, would have taken a music review and turned it into that kind of a, a fictional narrative very much it reminds me a little bit of Hunter Thompson, you know, the, the new age of journalism. And people have a hard time understanding in today's society about PC and cream, cream in the early 70s. The, the entire idea was it was almost a test of people to see whether you could take a joke. And if you couldn't take a joke, then you were somehow kind of weak and you didn't get it and you weren't cool. So I think, you know, that's something that people need to understand that sometimes you don't get the joke and sometimes the joke is brutal. But I mean, I'm sure you agree with me that one of the greatest things about Cream was, was the humor. Oh, I mean, it's what separated the magazine from everything else on the newsstand at the time. And, you know, and, and yet it was done and at times, sure, it was, you know, uh, you know, violish and, and whatever, but, um, but it was done, if it hadn't been done with a sense of, uh, uh, it was this kind of like wink, wink, nod, nod. And it was also like, 
but it was done really intelligently. And, you know, if it had just been like, you know, high school locker room bullshit, um, it wouldn't have gone over as well as it did. But the fact it was written the way it was, it helped kind of, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, put those things aside and, 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 and let you know that, okay, this might be a really dumb joke, but on the other hand, at the end of the day, these guys are really smart and I can feel safe in laughing at <laughs> just how locker room this joke is. I think one of the reasons that it's appealed to, to people that work in media and writers and for so many years is the very thing you were talking about, the intellectualism. Of, they can appreciate the fact that there was so much good writing that was involved in it. And yet at the same time, unlike Rolling Stone, who tended to sort of talk down somewhat to the readers and, yeah. and come from this lofty perch, the guys, the writers at Cream were more like, hey, dude, you know, don't waste your money on this turd, you know, like exactly. move on. That it was sort of a popular, an intellectual populist sort of magazine that, that, that anybody could pick up anywhere. And I loved the interview you did with Jeff Amon of Pearl Jam, where he was saying, it was like our social media. Like if you were in a small town and you didn't have jack shit going on and there was nothing happening, you could pick up cream just like, just like some people do, you know, that are in lockdown on their computers and you can feel a part of something. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Michael Stipe did a really great job too of, again, illustrating that sense of isolation um, that you um, might have felt as a teenager um, in anywhere any small town or, or, or large town for that matter, um, in the, in, in the U S uh, at that time and not having, um, any kind of, um, media outlet to, to really let you know what, I mean, you know, let's face it. Like at that point, you know, the way that you figured out things, you know, that were going on with, you know, just music news in general was either the weeklies or the monthlies. And then you kind of gleaned whatever you could from the lyric sheet or from the album, the LP jacket or whatever it was. There just wasn't, a, it just wasn't, there was no real source of, of information other than the, what you saw on the newsstand. And so you, um, I'm not sure, it's hard to kind of get that across in 2020 when uh, anything you want is at your fingertips. Um, and, and so you realize the importance of this stuff and just what, um, you know, how it, it, it could change lives at that point um, because it was so important and, and so valuable and just a great resource for, for information that just was lacking anywhere. I mean, like I said, you just couldn't find it anywhere else other than the, you know, I guess Rolling Stone was maybe bi-weekly weekly at that point. But again, Rolling Stone wasn't covering, you know, editorially a lot of what Cream was. No, they, Rolling Stone had a, they had a thing against punk rock for a long time. They, they wouldn't cover, you know, they would never go near uh, the Stooges, much less the MC5. I mean, it was, they were sort of on this perch. And so Cream was kind of like that thing that, here's the thing that I always find interesting. If you look at what passes for music criticism today, and I say that, you know, with real sort of uh, annoyance, because if I pick up a Rolling Stone and I, like somebody I know still has this actual physical subscription. It's like $50 a year for 12 issues. But anyway, if you pick up a Rolling Stone or if you pick up most critical magazines where there's a review, 
the the reviewer kind of just kisses ass and just kind of is like you know we're kind of in this thing where everything's supposed to be you know safe and and positive and they, maybe it really sucks but there's a couple of things here cream was completely different they they pretty much hated everything and and if you go back and you look at the at lester's reviews of like black sabbath where he says they're just you know ripping off cream and everything i think that made people actually trust what you know cream had to say it 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 made them um, like kind of legit. Like I can trust these people, they hate everything. Absolutely, and you can imagine if you're a band and you get a good review in Cream, what that must have meant. Right. And that's why that magazine um, resonated, I think with so many musicians uh, at that time, because um, as you said, you know, uh, Rolling Stone, I think had a uh, sort of editorial environment where, I mean, Jan, it's no secret, Jan would, you know, the, the, the publisher would routinely, um, if a writer gave a, an album, uh, what is it, five stars? Uh, yeah, I think it was five star. So if a writer would give an album five stars, but if that particular artist or that label hadn't advertised that issue, he'd knock the, you know, he'd knock it from five to three. Uh, so um, I don't think that's any big secret. And I think- no, that, I, I never heard that, but that's great. Oh. That's yeah, yeah. So th that's um, something. So that's think about that for a second. I mean, that's the environment you're in. So there's an expectation there if you're a writer. Whereas with Kareem, it was like, uh, you know, the artist could be on the front cover. There could be a f five thousand word feature on that particular artist. And when it came, when you got to the end, when you got to the end of the magazine, and you got to the album review section, that album might have gotten trashed. <laughs> You know, there was, it wasn't this, you know, and so um, there wasn't this, there was this sort of bite the hand that feeds. Exactly. It wasn't uh, like if you, if you, if you're getting a cover, don't think you're necessarily going to get a pass on the review. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, there's no guarantee that, you know, we're not going to have mercy on you just because you, you know, help pay our rent this month. And I think, as you said, I think that, uh, that, uh, created a sense of trust with the uh, readership. And, uh, you know, that's, that's something that, you know, so many bands, so many artists I spoke to said, you know, like it was a badge of honor, um, you know, to, to get trashed by cream and conversely to, to be loved by cream. You know, right. it was not, there was no expect, you know, who knew, who knew what you were going to, what they were going to say on any given month on any given record. So, um, I'm just trying to think of like a current day um, comparison, I guess, maybe Pitchfork. I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not I, I don't read it enough to know, but. I, you know, the thing that, the, the part about Cream and the part about rock and roll in the 70s for people who, you know, went through it and, and endured the tremendous, um, almost catastrophic casualty list of what happened to to not only you know, uh, musicians, but a lot of rock writers have had fairly short lifespans. Um, Rick Johnson, I think, uh, passed away like 56 or something. And he was one of my, he was like Rob Sheffield, a media critic before there was Rob Sheffield. And he was, he was great. He once did a, um, a book review of a Rolling Stones biography and he hated it so much. The title of the review was Paint It Hack, H-A-C-K. <laughs> so, and I, I, the thing is, though, it was there was tragedy as a backdrop for this. And the thing is, I had never I was always fascinated with Barry Kramer. And I was always wondering, 
here's this guy and he, he overdosed on a bag of nitrous oxide. And I remember reading this and just thinking, like what happened to this guy? And a, a major part of your film and talking to Connie Kramer, and I think she made a comment like he didn't really want to die. He just didn't want to live anymore. And can you tell me, it, it's, he's never really been covered in this kind of detail before. Can you tell me, you know, after you did this project, how you view him and like what happened? Yeah, I, um, you know, I had certainly heard stories about Barry uh, before I started the film, but I went into it with, with um, you know, no real opinion other than, you know, uh, you know, how much I respected him in terms of what he allowed the writers to do. Beyond that, it was just sort of like, okay, let's just let the story unfold. And, you know, to be honest, there were a number of people that declined to be interviewed uh, because of their relationship with Barry. I was going to ask you who who was it that who were some people that you wanted and maybe not can you say that you wanted yeah you know it would have to be off the record but um but there were a number of people that just flat out declined um and that was due to um you know just their relationship with barry i think he was kind of a uh you know clearly a divisive or you know character but also love him or hate him you know so there wasn't really a whole lot of gray area there i think when it came to barry so but certainly uh, he's somebody that in terms of launching a magazine, when you look at his manifesto, you know, that he helped write in what 69, I think with, with Marsh, um, you know, it, it's something that instantly resonated with me because it was essentially, you know, discussing the sort of punk rock values before punk rock was ever even a term, let alone a, a genre or anything. So um you know, just not, you know, just knocking these figures off their pedestals and, you know, not being beholden to a, to a, an advertiser and things like that. Those are, you know, uh, when you think about it, those are pretty bold, you know, things to, to, uh, to declare when you're starting, when you're launching something, let alone something, you know, five, six years, you know, that's the kind of thing you, you might, you know, defend and say like, you know, five years into it, like, Hey, look, you know, we, we've reached this level of, you know, whatever. And we're not, you know, this is what we're doing and you love it or hate it. Well, you know, take it or leave it. But that's something from the get go that they, that they put out there. Uh, and so that was um, an important thing for me. And it was, it's what helped sort of guide me uh, in telling the story uh, of, of the magazine as well. There, there was quite a story about how this movie was put together. Um, I know that you guys um, did a Kickstarter campaign and there was, I was reading the crawl and it's like something 1200 contributors that must've felt pretty, pretty good to get um, that kind of response. I mean, it just, how hard is it to, these days to get financing uh, for an indie movie? I mean, is it, is it, is it like insurmountable for some people, would you say? Uh, probably. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 um, we were lucky, uh, you know, we, we, I, my first film was about the, um, the punk scene in DC in Washington, DC in the eighties, which. Yeah. It's a classic by the way. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. And we were that I just did because it was something, it was a story I wanted to tell. I had no idea what I, you know, what the response was going to be. And we reached our goal on Kickstarter in six days. Wow. Um, so I finished that and I said, okay, well, all right. So here's this equally important story that I want to tell and let's do it again. And we reached our goal in I think two and a half weeks. So, you know, but, but 
also I was asking for, I think four times as much, maybe uh-huh. more. Um, cause I knew it was a bigger story. Uh, so, um, yeah, we really lucked out, but, but we also got a lot of, um, independent financing as the film went on, um, as well. And you just couldn't tell the story and have the music and have the, you know, all the various things that we did, you just couldn't, you couldn't have done it any other way. Um, and I didn't want it to be a studio thing. I wanted to, I wanted to be able to do this film independently in the spirit of cream. And I didn't want to be beholden to, you know, a studio or somebody, some financier that didn't necessarily agree with, you know, uh, the vision because I'm stubborn that way. Yeah. So so we were lucky. A number of people stepped up and uh, we were lucky enough to get uh, additional financing to, to get the film across the finish line. Uh, So yeah, I feel very lucky to have been able to have uh, had that kind of freedom. How does how does one launch or how does one get into the Sundance Festival? I mean, I thought that was really cool, and I'm sure that felt great, right? To premiere there. Uh, you mean South by? Yeah, South I, by. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, South by. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, yes, yeah, so that was huge. I did not expect. Well, I don't know what I expected, but uh, when when we got word that that they wanted to premiere it, that was huge, and I knew, okay, I'm on to something here. Like clearly, I'm not the only one that this story resonates with. So. Uh, that was pretty big, and and um, uh, to premiere it there was was a, just a huge honor. And it wasn't the final completed version that you'll see now um, in your home starting August seventh. Okay, but uh, but but it was it was damn close, and uh, I think it's a better film now than what screened there. But yeah, that was a huge. That was wow. That was that was up there. Yeah, I mean, I Salad Days is is a really cool movie, and it it the the, the thing you're talking about the DC uh, hardcore scene and has Dave Grohl and and talks about that stuff. I I find it interesting, and I, I've made this comment with other people right now that it seems to be an amazing time right now for music documentaries. If you look at the platforms like Amazon and Netflix and stuff, there is so much product out there. Do you think that that's um, just a coincidence that the that the boomer population that a lot of these bands appeal to, you know, they're trying to, you know, they're getting they're getting pretty up there in years. Or do you think it's the technology has improved to the point that you can do so much better job doing these? Is it is it related to that at all? I think it's a combination. I mean, I think, you know, it's like when you uh, you know you first started seeing you know hearing the buzzcocks on a Toyota commercial, right? you're like, why is this happening? And then you go, oh, right. Because the people that are in positions of power, decision-making, um, you know, in these uh, ad agencies or whatever are, are coming of age. And these are the same people that the Buzzcocks, you know, resonated with 20 years ago. And you go, oh, okay, now it makes sense. So it's not any, it's not really all that different when you think of, of making a film and, and thinking about it, the audience for it. So, um you know, I, I kind of struck gold with Salad Days. I didn't expect that. Uh, I didn't expect the response and um, was a little overwhelmed by it. Um, but I also knew that I was, you know, this city was something, it was very something very, I didn't, first of all, I didn't want to tell a story that was the same old thing that had been told a million times before about, you know, punk rock in the eighties and, you know, sort of machismo and, and, and just all of that, you know, the sort of, um, it, that story had already been told. And I knew that what I lived through and what I experienced was different. 
And I think I wanted to tell that story and just having Washington DC as the backdrop and how that affected the music in a way that could, um, it really couldn't have existed anywhere else in the country at that point. I think is, I'd like to think is what helped propel that, that film. Um, and I think cream is the same way in terms of the geography. Uh, you know, here's a magazine again, did not exist on either of the coasts, what East or West and, uh, kind of, but yet had was part of a music scene that was my God. I mean, think about the timing of that. I, I mean, I challenge you to find a, a music scene that was more, you know, um, geez, just, uh, seminal at that point. I mean, maybe, you know, uh, between Motown and what was happening with the proto-punk scene at that point with Iggy and everything else. I mean, geez. So, um, so I'm always interested in, in sort of the, the, the geographical component and how that affects, um, you know, what, what's going on culturally at that point. You know, it's funny because New York has the punk rock, you know, the punk rock, uh 70s thing you know blondie television and and la has the doors buffalo springfield and all that but it's amazing to me how many small towns or towns off the beaten path i don't know if anybody could have predicted seattle would have exploded like it did in 1990 i don't think anybody would have predicted athens georgia would have been this like hotbed so those 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 uh if you can find a scene like that and you know get access and get people and get clips and everything. I think that's such a rich territory to mine. No, I agree with you. And I think it's bigger than just a music scene. I think if you can tell the story in a way where, again, where it, it um, you tell it in a way where it's bigger than, than music, it's, it's just, uh, you know, and you talk about the, the factors that sort of helped uh, create that particular sound or that particular movement, whatever you want to call it. It really get into that, that deeper, you know, kind of um, underbed of what's going on, um, you know, and I think, like you said, Athens, a great example of that. Um, I don't know if that's been properly done. Maybe it has been in a movie, movie format. I'm not sure. Uh, there's a movie called Athens, Georgia, uh, that came out in 1984. And if you, have, if you haven't seen it, it, uh, it shows Pete Buck and Michael Stipe. Uh, and Michael's doing his standard mumbling, you know, he's like, well, he's doing these interviews, but it's, uh, quite good. Uh, highly recommend it. Um, I just was curious, was there anything that happened? Um, I don't have the DVD, but let me just back announce this real quick. You're listening to Gonzarilla. This is music, movies, comedy, and excessive consumption. And I'm talking to Scott Crawford, the director of the uh, new film that's coming out, uh, Cream Magazine. Let me hold on, Scott. I need to find <laughs> the title. because it. Oh, it changed from Boy Howdy. Was that just it did. Was there a reason yeah. for that? I wanted to ask you that. Oh, uh, yeah, that was sort of a working title. Um, yeah. And I realized, you know, that um, once the film, well, okay, let me backtrack. So that was a working title, Boy Howdy, The Story of Cream Magazine. And then the film was picked up for distribution by Greenwich uh, Films. And we kind of collectively decided that, you know, the, we, I, I always struggled a little bit with the Boy Howdy thing because if you understood it, you want, you got, you know, if you got it, you got it. If you didn't, you were like, what the hell is boy howdy? So, (laughs) uh, so I just said, you know what, let's just, you know, let's just keep this simple. And so we changed the title to cream America's 
only rock and roll magazine, which is their, their subhead. It was right there on every cover. It, it, you saw the cream logo and beneath that you saw America's only rock and roll magazine. Is, is it true that uh, our crumb was paid 50 bucks for that logo? That is correct. <laughs> um, just imagine what he would have made in merchandising fees if he had taken a percentage. You probably don't want to get started on that subject uh, with our crumb, but yes, I, yes. Uh, my name is Brian Bentley and I'm talking to Scott Crawford, the director of the new movie uh, about Cream Magazine. And I wanted to ask you if you could just explain really quickly the, the release date of August 7th. That's not the DVD data. Anyone's listening to this, they might think, oh, you know, where's the DVD I'm looking for on Amazon. Can you explain exactly what that release is entailing? Sure, yeah. So in these surreal end of the world, end of times kind of days that we're dealing with, um, yeah, the, the release date now for a film has taken on a new meaning. So uh, it has several meanings. So August 7th, is the official release date for the film in terms of what's now called virtual cinema, which means you're, if you're lucky, hopefully your local cinema, uh, you know, a lot of the major metropolitan uh, towns um, are offering this. I know LA and New York, I don't have all the details yet, but, uh, but are, are offering this where, uh, you know, some of you may be familiar with uh, a chain like Alamo draft house where there's 20 or 30 of these, theaters across the country and essentially they're offering films just as they would for a, a normal theatrical audience except you can watch it from your living room because we're not allowed to go see films now so uh and so in other words you have like a month um sort of jump on anyone else that might want to see the film uh so by the end of the month it'll be on uh tvod which will include all your local you know whoever it is that's hosting your cable, your, I'm sorry, your local cable channels, whether that's Infinity or Verizon or whoever it might be. And then come October, the DVD will be available uh, at retail stores. Great. That's awesome. Is there anything about the film that you might've put on a bonus DVD that somebody might see? Is there any stories that, that, that you had to cut out or anything interesting? Like, you know, you know, when they have the DVD extras, they always talk about, well, here's a funny story. Yeah, uh, actually on the DVD, there are, uh, I think a dozen or more uh, bonus features uh, that, that you'll find. And they were just uh, either, you know, snippets that we just couldn't fit into the film or didn't have the proper context for. Um, There's also uh, um, a reenactment that we did that was kind of fun where we had kind of like uh, if Rolling Stone and Cream walked into a bar <laughs> uh, that we did in Austin, that was pretty great. And so that you'll find in the, uh, in the extras. So for the most part, I was able to, I mean, there were a couple little uh, roads we went down and sort of traveled and explored and, um, and that just didn't make it into the film. Um, maybe someday we'll put out there. Um, but for the most part, um, I think we got what we wanted in there. It's a, it's less than 90 minutes. It's, 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 a it's, you know, it's funny. Someone asked me the other day, like, what, you know, this is, you know, your first film was like 90, I don't know, 95 minutes or something like that. Like, and this film is, you know, 80 minutes or less, like what? And uh, I just never forgot premiering the film in New York City at a film festival. And it was a sold out audience. It was great. This is for Sal Dave, my first film. 
And Fred Armisen from Saturday Night Live uh, was in the audience and he was also in the film, but he was in the audience and he came up to me afterwards and he said, you know, great film, loved it, great job. I would have cut 10 minutes. And so I never forgot that, but whether it was conscious or not, I looked at the run times on both films and I realized they're literally 10 minutes apart. Right. So whether that was conscious or not, I have no idea. Are you working on anything right now that uh, would you like to plug anything or is there anything that you got in the works right now? I am actually. So I've started to work uh, on my next doc, which is a film about um, Joe Keithley. Joe Keithley was in a band or is in a band called DOA. Um, and DOA were probably one of the most important uh, North American punk bands in the 80s and continue to, you know, to put out records. Um, but it was like DOA, Black Flag, Dead, Dead Kennedys, uh, Minor Threat. When you talk about the 80s, those were the bands that you talked about. And um, DOA really created the blueprint in terms of those bands touring at that point. Um, you know, they, they were the first to tour really the, the United States. Uh, so anyway, uh, the singer, Joey Keithley, otherwise known as Joey Shithead Keithley, mm -hmm. uh, is now a uh, an elected council member in outside of Vancouver. Sell out. <laughs> <laughs> right? So um, the, my next film that I'm working on is the story, not so much about DOA, but really more about just um, combining the two things that probably mean the most to me, which are activism and, and music. And combining those two things, and uh, in the case of Joe Keithley, he combined those two things and put those words into action and became an actual functioning politician uh, for the Green Party in Canada. So the next film will follow his sort of trajectory or his um, campaign into the 2022 election in Canada. Wow, that's cool. Thank you. Yeah, um, yeah so a lot of people don't realize that punk rock musicians are often very smart, especially politically. Oh. Yeah. I know, right? Like uh, if you look at like Quincy or you look at Chips or some of those things that were going on in the 80s, you look at the way they were presented culturally, you know, they, you just think they were a bunch of, you know, junkies that knew nothing except how to trash a bathroom. Right. And, and that's just not the case. Well, listen, uh, it's been great talking to you. I, I, I wrote uh, seven pages of questions and I pretty much have chewed through all of them. And uh, I just wanted to thank you for, uh, being on the show. And I'm going to just do a back announce that uh, we've been talking to Scott Crawford, the director of the new cream documentary, America's only rock and roll magazine. And I found it just an amazing blast of the past. And, and I enjoyed it immensely. And this magazine meant so much to so many people because I think of the idealism and commitment and the fact that it was um, something that you couldn't find anywhere else, which, I think it comes down to one word or two words, really, freedom and the truth. And again, it's coming out, um, as we discussed, on August 7th, and the DVD will be coming out a couple months later. But um, Scott, uh, great talking to you, man. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Brian. I appreciate your support and appreciate your time and film uh, hitting uh, video on demand later in August and uh, in virtual theaters August 7th.